Hi, Gary Zacharias here with the Apologist Bookshelf. I have a heavy-duty history book here that I'd like to look at this time. It's called One Nation Under Gods, plural, One Nation Under Gods. It's a history of the Mormon Church by Richard Abanes, A-B-A-N-E-S. Uh, he's a religion journalist, lives in our area, Southern California, has written a lot of books. One was an award-winning book called American Militias, Rebellion, Racism, and Religion. And uh, several people comment favorably about this book on the back cover. I think it's interesting. One of the people who likes it a lot is Michael Shermer, who's the publisher of Skeptic Magazine and not a Christian. He said, this book is sure to stir things up, both in the Mormon and Christian religious communities. One Nation Under Gods is a triumph of research and wisdom. So you hear it from a non-Christian, but you also hear it from Hank Hanegraaff, who's the Bible Answer Man, head of Christian Research Institute. He says this is a unique and fascinating book that reveals not only the true and complete history of Mormonism from its 19th century origins to the 2002 Olympics, but also documents many of those rarely discussed aspects of Mormon history known only to serious investigators of Mormonism's past. Now you notice Hanegraaff said it goes up to the 2002 Olympics, but that's all right. That means it's almost 20 years uh, old as far as its history, but this is a focus especially on the early history of the Mormon church, things that most people don't know. And I thought it was fascinating that the person who wrote the uh, foreword is Sandra Tanner, great-great-grandchild of Brigham Young. Now, she grew up as a Mormon. She said, I was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but came to a conclusion that that was not really the true religion. And uh, she said she discovered that the Mormon hierarchy had been, from its very start, been deliberately suppressing information about the history of Mormonism. So she says, uh, a Baines in his book is talking about the desires the LDS Church had for economic and political dominance. And she talks about uh, how this book covers assassinations, murders, the mood, uh, move to Utah, Mormons moving to Utah, blood atonement killings, polygamy, Mormon cover-ups, and conspiracies. So she calls it a well-written and absorbing book. And uh, when we get to the actual author's preface, he says, it's, it's kind of disappointing. He says, some of the least reliable accounts of Mormon history have been, have been produced by the LDS Church. So it says, uh, in their past, in a 1981 address at BYU, a man named D. Michael Quinn, he was an expert in the field of Mormon studies, he urged historians to conceal controversies and difficulties of the Mormon past and uh, not, not have anything that would criticize the church. And his claim is that the Mormon church has for decades been spinning a biased picture of the LDS faith. And so I'm going to focus on just one chapter. I mean, this book has so much. But chapter four is called Smith's Golden Book. And I thought this would actually be a good chapter to talk about because it focuses on the Book of Mormon especially. And he starts off by saying the big picture is that Mormonism started with an 1820 vision that Joseph Smith had of God and Jesus. Then in 1825, he was visited by the angel Moroni, and then that led him to, two years later, 1827, to retrieve the Book of Mormon golden plates, and then translate them, and by 1830, that information was released. 
He said, well, that's the story. But he said, really, the plausible events that led up to the Book of Mormon were more likely this. And I, I will read it briefly, but this is something you might want to pick up and, and find more about as you read the rest of the book. So he says, 1819, around 1820, Joseph Smith Sr. and his sons, and he said all of them, practiced folk magic and occultism. They became involved in digging up money. Joseph Jr. discovered some kind of stone in a well that he was helping dig, and he begins to use it as a seer stone to locate buried treasure, stolen goods, and silver deposits. He says the family continued at that time to practice divination and rural folk magic. Well, 1822 to 1824, his fame as a money digger and a fortune teller and a seer spread throughout New York and Pennsylvania. Now he's getting hired all the time. 1825, people want him to help them find buried treasure through these occult skills. 1826, he's still money digging in New York. He gets a tried, he gets arrested, tried, and convicted as a glass looker, I guess using these seer stones. 1826, 1827, he starts spreading a story that he had a dream a few years back where he learned from a bloody ghost about a secret location of some golden plates hidden in a hill. And these plates supposedly were like, it was like a treasure map. It told where you could find buried treasure. Well, that bloody ghost dream by 1828 to 1830 turned into something different. It was a vision of a spirit. And then there was a vision of an angel and finally a vision of an angel named Nephi and or Moroni. 1827, he allegedly retrieved these plates, changed his story, and talked about America's ancient inhabitants. And then he pretty soon attributed religious significance to these stories. Then that motivated him to use that information in the Book of Mormon to attract a religious following. So what's in the Book of Mormon or what in, what's in these plates? Well, according to Baines, the plates contained a chronicle of God's dealings with early inhabitants of the Americas from around, oh, something like 2200 years before the birth of Jesus, so we're talking 2200 BC, to about 400 years after the death of Jesus. And what happened is that you had three major migrations coming from the Eastern Hemisphere. So this is his story. The first migration is that of what were called Jaredites. And they came over and they produced a great civilization several thousand years ago, and it lasted about 2,000 years. Finally, there was a big war and uh, in uh, somewhere in the Americas, and then they disappeared. The second migration took place about 600 B.C., when Zedadiah was king of Judea, Zedekiah, sorry, was king of Judah. And uh, so a prophet named Lehi and his friend Ishmael led their families out of Jerusalem, and they came over to the Americas, and they established a great civilization. But unfortunately, things didn't go well, and they split into two warring factions, the Nephites and the Lamanites. And God didn't like this. The Lamanites were pretty uh, raunchy people. And God prohibited intermarriage between these groups, and he pronounced a terrible curse on these Lamanites. And what was the curse? A skin of blackness, so they would not be enticing to the white, Nephites. So for hundreds of years, you got this clashing going on here in this new world, until one day Jesus appeared to offer them, appeared to all of them, and he offered his gift of salvation. And he talked about his crucifixion and resurrection in Palestine, taught them the same thing that he taught people then. 
But it says, kind of interesting, that in most cases, Jesus used the language of 1611 King James Version of the English. Well, what's the problem? The Book of Mormon was supposedly written a thousand years before the King James Bible was published, but it's using King James English. Now, that only makes sense if Joseph Smith took the King James English and pushed it back and pretended it for it to be part of this Book of Mormon. All right, anyway, back to the story. War erupts again between Nephites and Lamanites, even though Jesus had come to try to calm this thing down. They had battles all over Americas. Millions were killed on both sides. Finally, there was one last major battle between the Nephites and Lamanites in western New York near what was called Hill Cumorah, C-U-M-O-R-A-H. And the Lamanites won, and they allowed only a handful of these Nephites to survive, but the fighting still didn't end. And then the Lamanites turned on themselves and got really, really savage. So when Columbus finally came here, these were the American Indians, and they'd become a really filthy, loathsome people, according to the Book of Mormon, and they lost track of their Jewish origins. They didn't know their dark-skinned appearance was a curse, cursed by God. Well, it says no professional non-Mormon anthropologist or archaeologist has ever given any merit to the idea that Native Americans are descended from Israelites. In fact, they've done a lot of studies since then, uh, and they've found out that the Native Americans are Asiatic, not from the Middle East. Okay, so let's move along here. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, if that's okay. I want to get to where they talk about the Book of Mormon, because that's fascinating to me. It says, Smith's creativity. Okay, he seems to be, as he wrote this, he seems to have been enhanced with that King James version of the Bible. That was 1611. It says, Several Bible stories are blatantly reworked to fit Book of Mormon characters. All right, so here's an example. The daughters of Jared, right, that's a character in the Book of Mormon, like Salome, danced before a king, and they followed it up with a decapitation. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's what happened to John the Baptist. Then there's Aminadi, like Daniel, deciphered handwriting on a wall. Alma, who's also a Book of Mormon character, was converted after the exact fashion of St. Paul. The daughters of the Lamanites were abducted like the dancing daughters of Shiloh. That's in Judges 21. And Ammon is kind of a David. He slew six sheep rustlers with his sling. Wow, try to say that fast. Slew six sheep rustlers with his sling. Anyway, that's referencing the first Daniel 17, uh, first Samuel 17 account. Even names and words in the Book of Mormon are taken either from the King James Bible or the Apocrypha. And sometimes there's only a letter or two that shows their difference. And it, there's a, a huge index of notes in the back here. I'm just going to ship, let's see, i got to get there here, Five, page 511. I just wanted to give you a couple of examples of what they were talking about here, how some of the names are so close. Okay, the Bible had a character named Omer in the Book of Mormon. It's Omner. There's a character in the Bible named Nahum. In the Book of Mormon, there is a Nahom, H-O-M, instead of U-M. There's Gershon in Genesis in the Bible. There's Jershon, J, instead of a G, in the Book of Mormon. Uh, Ham is in the Bible. Hem, H-E-M, is in the Book of Mormon. Nephi, there's, 
uh, it's it's all the way through there. That's from the from the apocrypha, exactly the same spelling. Laban is the same. Zedekiah is in apocrypha. Zedekiah is in the Book of Mormon. Isaiah is in the apocrypha. Isaiah, same spelling, is in the Book of Mormon. So many of the uh, names are just borrowed, just with very little change. In other places, Smith plagiarized. He plagiarized material. And I won't read it to you because it'll take too much time, but they have all sorts of quotations here that are from the Apocrypha, and it's just word for word from Book of Mormon. Now, the Apocrypha was written well before the book, I'm sorry, well after the Book of Mormon. Okay, so what happened there? What did Smith do? He borrowed from the Apocrypha and put it in the Book of Mormon. So there's a ton of places here. Let me just give you just maybe two or three from the King James to show you how little got changed. The Bible says, The Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Book of Mormon says, He shall rise from the dead with healing in his wings. Book of Mormon, The gall of bitterness and bonds of iniquity. Where'd they get that? The Bible, King James, The gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. O wretched man that I am. That's in both. King James, Book of Mormon. And it goes on and it goes on. So, Oh, there's another section. I just have to share this with you because as an English teacher, I got a kick out of this. It says, when the original 1830 Book of Mormon was released, you could see the awful grammar that was in there. It says he would insert all sorts of words that weren't important. He'd put no when he should have used any. He did all sorts of things. And here's a partial listing of what you hear if you picked up the original 1830 Book of Mormon. Remember, this is called one of the most uh, accurate and true and and uh, well-written books, according to the Mormons. Oh, listen to this. Moroni was a coming against them. As I was a journeying, they did not fight against God no more. I have not sought gold nor silver nor a manner of riches of you. No man can look in them, lest he should look for that he had not ought. This they done throughout the land. This he done that he might subject them. Okay, well, that gives you an idea. The grammar is, is pretty bad. It says many of those errors, and there are many. Good heavens. Uh, they got names wrong. They got all sorts of things wrong. It says many of those errors in the 1830 Book of Mormon has, have been corrected by LDS leaders. And I guess somebody's toted this all up, but it says by 2001, the Book of Mormon had undergone a textual facelift of around 4,000 substantive changes, not just a comma or something, but big changes. And again, all of this is referenced in a huge section of notes. In fact, let me take a second just to give you an idea of how many notes are in here. Good grief. I'm still flipping through the pages to try to find where it starts. Okay, so here we go. The notes start on 480, and they go to over 600. You got over, you got almost 200 pages of notes. And then as the chapter begins to wind down, it talks about all these errors. Oh, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is what Smith called Book of Mormon. Smith said it's the most correct of any book on earth. Hmm. Well, the author ends up this chapter saying the most damaging strike against the Book of Mormon is the lack of any archaeological evidence to support it. And that's true. I think they even asked the Smithsonian one time, is there any evidence? I mean, think about what they've claimed here, that there were 
millions of people living in civilizations, fighting huge battles, and they have found nothing, not a single stone, not a single arrowhead, not a coin, not a chariot, nothing that would reflect the Book of Mormon. They, they cannot produce a map. They don't know where any of this took place. Uh, so that, that gives you an idea, at least of this chapter. But it continues with the story of the uh, Mormons and has, a, has some interesting pictures. And it's just a really well-done book. Pretty impressive. So if you're talking to Mormon friends, at least think about this. They may not want to be challenged with it, but you ought to at least be aware of how much myth-making is going on and, and how much deception is going on when it comes to some of these uh, different things the Mormons have put out. Okay, uh, by the way, I've got a Mormon neighbor. i got several Mormon neighbors. They're wonderful people. I love them to death. And I just feel so bad that something like this is taking them down a wrong road. Um, I don't know how they're dealing with this. And I've, I try to walk lightly when we talk about it. I've talked to one of my neighbors about this, but he's pretty staunch. And uh, he says, yeah, I don't know right now. You know, He's hoping that in the future, more archaeological discoveries will be made and everything will work out okay. And I don't think that's the case. But great people, and I just wanted you to have some background. You may not want to use this when you talk to Mormon friends, but it's just more for us to know and realize this is a, a, a terrible house of cards that they're living in. Okay, well, thanks so much for uh, being part of this podcast, and uh, talk to you later.